welcome uh, if you're joining us online as well uh, thank you for those of you who are uh, working with us uh, so far so good um, if I say so myself although I'm probably not the best person to make that call uh, doing the dual service um, with some folks joining on zoom um, thanks Bob and everyone else who uh, worked to get that all set up and meeting here again live uh, for the first time in a really long time. So thank you for joining us um, for this time of Advent. Um, as we talked about last week, we have our themes of Advent that we're focusing on. Um, there's some, some variation depending on denomination and tradition. We're uh, choosing the themes of uh, hope, peace, uh, joy, and love. You'll see two candles up here that are already lit. Um, those are the candles from the first two weeks of Advent. That's hope and peace. And today we celebrate joy. So with that in mind, I invite you as we start uh, this morning um, to join me in prayer. Um, let's take a moment. If you would just take a breath, find yourself uh, wherever you are your feet on the ground in this space at this time. God, we thank you for this community. We thank you for this time um, that we can focus, that we can take a moment, meditate on joy. God, this concept of joy is one that often is difficult to fully place um, in our society, in our culture, how quickly joy um, equals happiness and how fleeting happiness can be. And God, especially in these days, especially in this season, uh, we ask and we wonder, where is the joy that we can find? How um, do we introduce joy? Do we grasp joy in our own lives? So God, as we meditate on that, may you remind us um, that there is joy to be found. Um, God, even in the sorrow, despair, grief, difficulties that we all are walking through, God. May you show us the moments of joy, the words of joy, the people of joy. May we open ourselves to being surprised by joy um, in these days. God, I thank you for each person here and those uh, joining us online and um, their stories and the lives that they represent and that we uh, might cross paths in this space and during this time. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see so many of your faces here. We're still a small crew, but I can't tell you how excited I am that we get to meet in person. Um, and 
Advent is just such a great time for us to be able to do that. And as Max was sharing this morning, our uh, focus is on joy, which is a really interesting thing coming out of this last more than a year and a half of being in global crisis. And we're not through yet. Um, it reminds me that Advent is historically a really somber season. Um, in the anticipation of Christ coming, we celebrate Jesus' birth, but historically the idea of Christ and the way of Jesus coming again and that anticipation knowing that things are not the way that they should be, um, which has been a, a common refrain for us here at Central. We get to be a part of this process of bringing hope and joy and peace into the world. The advent of Christ coming back happens in and through us um, working in this world. And so um, historically, the candle for joy is also pink. And it marks this sort of turning point away from a more somber space in Advent into a celebration of joy and anticipation of what is to come and a hope that the world will not always be this way, that we can affect change and hope and grace and peace, that we can experience and be joy in the world. And so with that, we light the third candle. For joy. Would you join me in prayer? God of hope and peace and joy and love. Today we recognize our deep need for joy and the promise of joy that you bring that in the midst of the most difficult places in our lives, in the midst of crisis within us and through this world, we have a promise for joy to be able to experience that in community, in life with each other. In this Advent season, it's our prayer that we can be the embodiment of joy in this world for all people. Amen. Is 
Israel strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art Dear desire of every nation Joy of every longing heart Born thy people to deliver Born a child and yet a king Born to reign forever Now thy gracious kingdom bring By thine own eternal spirit, ruling all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. All I won't expect Come thou long-expected Jesus Born to set thy people free From our fears and sins release us Let us find our rest in thee The herald angels sing Glory to the newborn King Peace on earth and mercy mild God and sin is reconciled 
Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn heaven adored Christ the everlasting Lord late in time behold him come offspring of the favored one veiled in flesh the God had seen hailed incarnate deity pleased with us in flesh to dwell Jesus, our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Hail the ham-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth, born to give a second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Angie's going to give us some announcements this morning. Thank you, Max. Good morning. So uh, only a couple of announcements this week. Just a reminder that we'll be having a Christmas Eve service at 5 p.m. here. And then additionally, um, Max will be uh, organizing an Ascensia meal on the 30th. If you're interested in helping or finding out how you can donate, uh, just talk to Max. Um, and that's it. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hey, Randy, good to see you. This is a better crowd than last week, so that's good news. <laughs> Moving in the right direction here. Um, prayer requests, words of thanksgiving. Now is the time that we 
gather around each other as a spiritual family and and hear about matters in each other's lives and, and pray about those matters. But um, does anybody have something they want to share this morning? You can come on down. Yeah. So when, or Tuesday, Tuesday, I'm starting my chemo. So um, I've been told it's kind of a mild treatment plan I'm doing, but it's still unpredictable how I'm going to react to it. Um, it's uh, the body is very weird. <laughs> So, uh, but I'm optimistic and it's for three months and uh, my prognosis is pretty good. So, um, so yeah, I feel good going into it, but who knows, I might feel pretty bad for a few months. So just want to pray for myself <laughs> and hopefully, uh, hopefully it goes as well. Okay. Thank you. So that's it. Loving God, we lift up our dear brother, Dan, and uh, we give thanks for modern medicine and just a good prognosis. And the fact that um, his surgery went well, but we pray for his continued healing. We pray for his spirits, his state of mind as well. Uh, may he be at peace. May he receive all the support he needs, both from his doctors and from us and from his family. Be with him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, man, absolutely. Somebody else this morning? Yeah. Um, I have two different family members in the hospital right now. My grandmother's husband um, went in for something routine and there's some complications and he was in ICU for a couple days and he's out now as of yesterday, but still in the hospital. Um, and then my cousin in Wisconsin is having some sort of bleeding issues. And so they're keeping her in the hospital. So, yeah right before Christmas, just hope that both of them can be home for the holiday, so. Loving God, we lift up Jen's family members that are just struggling with these serious health concerns. We pray for healing. We pray for strength in their bodies and their spirits. And we hear um, Jen's stress and, and anxiety about, you know, their health, but also just being with family over the holidays as this can be just an incredibly stressful time of year, no matter what, but with health issues makes it even more so. We pray for relief. We pray for healing. We pray for hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Anybody else this morning? Yeah. Hello. So I just want to pray for people who have lost their loved ones. Um, this season can be really lonely for some people, um, like maybe the LGBTQ people who have been ostracized by their families, that type of thing. Loving God, I lift up my dear sister, Emily, and I can see the pain in her eyes as she talks about family members being estranged at this time of year, especially members of the LGBTQ family estranged from their families. We just pray for them. May they receive the love and the care and the support that they need. May they, may they not feel so lonely at this time of year. Be with them and help us to know how best to care for our friends and our family members at the time of year who identify as LGBTQ. And we just pray for their wholeness and well-being. 
now and always in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Anybody else? All right. Well, you know, actually, I want to just lead us in a quick prayer for uh, the parts of the country that were just totally devastated by those tornadoes. I want to remember um, them, and, and I know that some of us have family back there in the Midwest, and so let's, let's pray. Loving God, we lift up um, all those that are just suffering horrific devastation and just the prospect of having to rebuild their lives after the incredible loss from the storms this, this last week, this weekend. We pray for um, their support. We pray for the healing of their lives. Uh, may those uh, who are struck with homelessness find homes and, and places to go. We pray for their provision and their well-being. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, honey, go, go sit down, please. So let me uh, ask you this. What is, you just shout it out. It's cool. What are your favorite holiday movies? Anybody have a favorite holiday movie? Elf, I knew that would come up quickly. <laughs> Others, anybody have a favorite holiday film they like? The Preacher's Wife. What? Mulan? I can't understand what. Home Alone, Mulan. Mulan's not a holiday movie. What am I thinking of? Lucy, you like Mulan, but that's not a holiday movie. Um, yes, Home Alone, great. Well, which one? One, two, three, or five, six, seven. How many are there? Okay, all right. Oh, there's a new one. Oh, my gosh. Well, has, does anybody like those Hallmark? Uh, okay. There, oh, my gosh. There's always one in every crowd, too, here. Um, those are kind of fun to hate watch, too. Do you, do you, you, you can watch them because they're, I don't know why you watch them. I'm not going to speculate. Oh, really? This is, this is the wrong town for me to make such jokes. You're right. I need, to be, I need to be careful. All right. Anybody else want to shout out their favorite holiday movie? What is it? Klaus? Is that, that sounds like the German pronunciation of Klaus. Klaus. What, Lucy? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I have to speak from here. Yeah. And why don't you sit down and play with what May gave you? Yeah, you know, parenting from the pulpit, you know, it's not easy. Uh, all right, so my favorite holiday movie is It's a Wonderful Life. Does anybody else? Jason, I knew I'd get a hand from you. That is Nathan, too. All right, good. Um, and yes, I know it's a little campy. All right, yes, Emily reminds me of this every year. But I am always deeply moved by this film, and I always watch it at this time of year, um, perhaps like religiously, I guess. Um, and I always cry at the end. Now, I shouldn't say always because there was a time in my life prior to, so I'm 45 now, prior to my upper 30s, I wasn't as moved by that film as I am. Now, for some reason, maybe I've just gotten more sensitive in my old age, but I always cry at the end when George Bailey is at his house back with his family and all his neighbors show up and they start, you know, giving him all this money so he doesn't get arrested by the bank examiner, right? Uh, maybe I just ruined the film for you. I should have put a little spoiler. The, the movie's been out for 75 years, people, and it's shown a million times every, if you haven't seen it already, doesn't matter, right? But I always tear up at, at that moment because it's a profound message of grace and what a loving community 
actually can look like, right? And you know, today's theme is is joy. And for me, I do, I find myself crying a little bit at the end because it's like tears of joy for some reason. It just profoundly moves me that way. And it's about how one person, how one person, George Bailey, the impact he made on the lives of his neighbors that he never knew about until that moment, really. It's about the story and the impact of one person on the lives of so many others, and even a tiny little town like Bedford Falls, right? But here's the thing. Even though I and millions of others are deeply moved by that film and love watching it every year, we know it's fiction. We know it's fiction. We know George Bailey wasn't a real person and that Bedford Falls is a made up place, right? And everything about it is fictitious, except for the parts maybe about World War II happening and the Great Depression. And yet that doesn't diminish the power of that story one bit. I still cry at the end. I still love watching it every single year. I can't tell you how many times I've rewatched that story, that movie. My point is, we all know that a story doesn't have to be historical for it to be meaningful. I think we all know that. A story doesn't have to be historical. In other words, grounded in actual events for it to be meaningful. And of course, I'm relating this to the nativity story today. And I feel like this is an important message to have at this time of year and in a community like this one, where so many of us have deconstructed, right? And have left behind our evangelical roots or at least have attempted to do so. And that can lead us in a, leave us in a place where we're not sure how to relate to the text any longer, right? How to relate to the Bible, how to relate, especially to this story, the nativity story. Because it's got some pretty wild things in it. Angelic visitations, virgin teenage girls becoming miraculously present, uh, present, pregnant and present. You know, it's got some pretty startling aspects to it. I think it raises questions. How do we relate to the story anymore? Do we relate to it anymore? Does it mean anything? Does it move us? And to be clear, unlike George Bailey, I think Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person. But that aside, in my opinion, what makes his story, this story, the nativity story, so meaningful, whether you read it as historical or not, is the symbolic meaning present in the underlying spiritual message of the story, which is encased within its symbols and metaphors. This, I believe, was the original authorial intent of the gospel writers. And I think the first century people, the original audience of these gospels got that. It's not that they didn't think this was real history. It's that they didn't think of history like we do. This is so important to wrap our heads around. They didn't think of history like we do now as something independent of us that's objective and unchanging. History for them was something more fluid and subjective. For example, there's evidence that the Jewish writers of the Torah some 2,500 years ago saw writing itself and the oral reciting of scripture out loud 
as religious rituals that had the power to alter the very fabric of reality and even history itself. There's good precedence for this. Israel's neighbors, the Babylonians, the Persians, also understood the power of writing and the reciting of sacred stories as almost like magic, having the ability to alter reality and even history itself. History for them was not this scientific thing that is for us, where it's objective and unchanging. It's different for them. In other words, the stories weren't true, nor were they untrue for them in a literal sense. It wasn't untrue or true in a literal sense, because these categories of the literal and the figurative, it's, these categories, as we understand them, had not been invented yet. But rather, these stories were true in a spiritual sense for them, and I think can be still so for us. Again, these, these stories, these texts were written to be recited out loud in the context of a gathering spiritual community as liturgy, and they were recited and read out loud to productively shape reality and even history itself. These stories weren't there to just merely document history, which is how we approach the text. So, no, they were there to actually shape history. So these ancient people thought of language and, and writing as inherently spiritual or even magical. Keep in mind, this is like the dawn of civilization when most people couldn't read or write. You know, the, the idea of these symbols on stone or you know, that they had power, that they had meaning, I mean, that's deeply spiritual when you think about it. So they saw writing and speech and language as inherently spiritual and magical, and therefore not so much as a way of, again, recording scientific facts. Now, obviously, this is a completely different understanding of language, writing, and history than the one that we have, right? It is, this is a completely different understanding, and it's really hard for us moderns to wrap our heads around that for a few reasons, not the least of which is that we've been taught that the Bible is only meaningful if what it says is both historically and scientifically accurate, you know, something like an encyclopedia. That's what we've been taught, unfortunately. And it's so important to understand that that presupposition that we come to the text with is entirely a modern set of presuppositions and a reactionary one born out of the anxieties that cropped up over the last 400 years in Western civilization as a result of the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment and the scientific revolution from about the 17th century till now. Since that time, science has been seen as a threat to religion, both inside and outside the church. It's been seen as a threat or a competitor to religion. And so religion, especially in the context of Western history, so we're speaking about Christianity mostly. Christianity has attempted to save the faith, as it were, and to save the text, save the Bible. And the way that the church has done that or attempted to do that is by teaching us that the text is something like an encyclopedia where we go to look up factoids about God. It's something like a history textbook or a science textbook. When that wasn't really, those are modern categories, recent inventions, those ideas. flip over my page here of notes. Okay. 
So this is simply not what the text was originally intended for. And it's so important to understand that the people who wrote the scriptures thousands of years ago and their original audience, they did not think in the categories we do like figurative and factual, literal, or legendary. I'm, I'm reminded of an old Irish joke this morning. The Irish have the best jokes. And uh, this comes from the time of the Troubles, which if you know your, I guess, British or UK history, it was the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 80s in Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, where you had Catholics and Protestants at war with each other. And the joke goes like this. There's this man and he's trying to get into a pub in Belfast and there's a doorman and he goes up. The doorman asks him, or it says to him first, this is a Catholic only establishment, sir. Which one are you, Catholic or Protestant? The man says, well, I'm neither, I'm Muslim. And the doorman says, looking kind of confused. Okay, but what kind of Muslim, Catholic or Protestant? <laughs> the question doesn't make any sense, right? It assumes a set of categories, doesn't pertain or exist in the life of the individual involved. This is what I think we sound like when we come to the Bible and we ask questions like, well, is, am, am I reading fact or am I reading fiction? Is this history or is this legend, this, this story? Which is it? It's gotta be one or the other, we're told. No, those are modern categories. We might as well be asking, you know, how do you score a touchdown in baseball? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a confusion of categories. It doesn't apply. It's really hard for us to wrap our minds around that because we have been so programmed culturally with this modern worldview that loves to break things up into categories, right? That's what science helps. Science is great. Nothing wrong with modernism. I'm not, thank God for modernism and things like modern science and modern medicine, right? Modernism gave us a lot of great things, right? Science does set us free in so many ways, but also limits us in some ways, right? So we've got to learn to think like a first century Hellenized Jew sometimes when we read the text, if that's even possible. And I think it is to a certain degree, I think it is. And I think the best way for us to get there is by learning that it's neither the literal or the figurative reading that matters, but it's the symbolic one that matters. In other words, we must ask, what is the symbolic meaning of the text I'm looking at? What is, what is the spiritual lesson of this story I'm reading? Because I think that's the reading the authors intended for their audience to grapple with. And I'll give you a quick example from the nativity story. We're told in Matthew's gospel that after Jesus, immediately after he was born, he was carried away to Egypt by his parents in order to escape the clutches of the evil King Herod who wanted him dead. Years later, after Herod dies, Jesus and his family, Jesus is now a toddler, we assume, return to Israel. And Matthew says this of their return, that this fulfilled the prophecy from Isaiah, out of Egypt I have called my son. You hear that? Out of Egypt I have called my son. What's the symbolism here? It's the Exodus story. Jesus is being placed within the Exodus tradition Matthew is setting Jesus up and, and saying that this Jesus is a Moses-like figure, liberating God's people, 
bringing them into a new promised land called the kingdom of God. That's the meaning of that part of the story. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Yes, there's probably some other symbolic things going on there, but this is the meaning. And I'm setting, notice something, I'm setting aside the question, well, did this actually happen in real history or not? I'm setting aside that question. I'm not saying it didn't. I'm simply setting it aside in order to say, what is, the sim what is the symbolic meaning intended in this story? Out of Egypt, I have called my son. That's where the spiritual meaning resides. And the fact is, the nativity story, like the rest of the Gospels, is rife, rife with symbolism, just jam-packed with it, both from the Hebrew tradition and also the Greco-Roman tradition. The, the Gospels are just basically just loaded with symbolism. And the question is, what does it all mean? What does all this rich symbolism mean? What does it tell us about Jesus or God? And then what does it tell us also about ourselves and how we are supposed to live in the world? That's what all that symbolism is in there for. These are the questions that should preoccupy us. Not, well, did this actually happen? That's not the point. These are the spiritual questions. And, only, and the only way of answering those questions is by decoding and deciphering the symbolism that is present. What I'm talking about today is actually something called hermeneutics. Anybody ever hear of, that's a fancy seminary word. Yes, okay, so Diana and Emily, you've heard of hermeneutics before. Good, Desiree. Good, I'm, some people have heard of this before. Uh, hermeneutics basically means interpretation, but it's really so much more than just that. And actually, hermeneutics is a broad field of study having to do with more than just how we interpret the Bible, but how we, how we interpret any form of communication, be it writing or spoken, be it in art or religion. Hermeneutics has to do with deciphering, deciphering communication. It is the art of deciphering hidden meaning and understanding that meaning is often encrypted and enigmatic. Obviously, that's very complex and very philosophical, but that's basically hermeneutics. And it's interesting that the word hermeneutics comes from the name of the Greek god Hermes, who was the messenger of the gods and a notorious trickster and the inventor of speech and language, we're told. And he loved to speak in cryptic riddles and metaphors and symbolism. And all this made him the perfect namesake for this field of study called hermeneutics. And to me, what this means is that the ancient people were, you know, the writers of scripture, the world that Hermes came out of, they understood writing and language and symbolism far better than we give them credit for. In fact, I think we've lost this appreciation for story, for language for symbolism. And I think our, our religions and our sacred stories can help us recapture it if we let them. So I believe the ancients saw the symbolic as a spiritual dimension. I think they saw the symbolic as a spiritual dimension, and therefore to speak in metaphor and symbolism was a way of speaking in the language of the spirit. That's how I think it worked for them. There's no question that the biblical authors were obsessed with symbolism 
as a way of conveying spiritual truths. There's no question about that. There's no question that they saw story as also a way of communicating deep spiritual truths, symbolically, of course. They were obsessed with story and narrative as a way of conveying spiritual realities. The fact that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, arguably the most important parts of the Bible for us Christians, right? The fact that they are stories and narratives and parables primarily, rather than lectures or sermons, should tell us a lot about the way those people understood spiritual truth. It was embedded in symbolism, in story, because life itself is symbolism in story. Language itself, the, the words coming out, the sounds coming out of my throat right now and through the microphone and the speakers, they're just, no, it's just noise. It changes in air pressure that your ears pick up and decipher as ideas. The ideas in my head, which are immaterial, get into yours that way. That language itself is simply symbols, sounds that symbolize ideas or on pages scribbles of ink that symbolize real ideas. We are immersed in a matrix of symbols. There is no such thing as just a symbol. People often hear my approach to scripture and they say, oh, it's just symbolic to you. <laughs> There's no such thing as just a symbol. This, this ring on my finger is certainly a symbol, but it's not just a symbol, is it? Right? We, we are immersed in a matrix of symbols. Every, your relationships, everything that you find meaningful in your life is meaningful because of its symbolic import. It's an idea, first and foremost. That's the power of symbols, and that's the power of the text. So I think the best way for us to understand these texts is by doing some decoding, to hermeneutically decode and decipher and grasp the symbolic meaning present. The symbolic reading is the spiritual reading, I'm saying. The symbolic reading is the spiritual reading. Regardless of what we think about the historicity of what we're reading, we're setting that aside. You can read it literally or not. It's the symbolic reading that is the spiritual reading. And this means that people who have very different beliefs about the historicity of the text, they're the stories therein, we can arrive at the same interpretations, like that God is love or that the incarnation, the nativity story, symbolizes that God is with us in the material circumstances of our lives, that somehow God, Emmanuel, is with us here and now in the flesh in each other. Notice, both conservatives and progressives, so to speak, can have that same interpretation. But, you know, the conservatives might say, well, that actually happened. And the progressives be like, no, it's metaphor. It doesn't matter. The symbolic meaning is the same. My hope today is that this short talk can help us, regardless of our various beliefs and readings of Scripture. And there are different readings of Scripture in this room. There are some different beliefs, and that's wonderful. My hope is that regardless of the way that we read these ancient stories, they can still mean something powerful to us in the way that I'm describing. They can have this kind of symbolic and deep spiritual meaning to us. My, my hope is that these stories still give you joy. 
my hope is that they still give you joy. So with that, I want to invite us into our time of communion, which, by the way, is a holy sacrament dating back to the generation of the church that is absolutely rife with symbolism. And no, you cannot touch the fire. <laughs> I don't know if she was going for that or not. Um, obviously, this is an incredibly symbolic tradition we have, the body and blood of Jesus here in the form of grape juice and crackers, right? The idea is that Christ's body is dismembered and scattered among us as bread and wine. And as we receive it, we remember Christ within ourselves, and therefore we become the body of Christ. Christ's body and blood becomes our body and blood in this sacrament. That's the deeper symbolism of this, at least to me. And this morning, I invite you forward. I want you to consider what this means to you symbolically about God's presence in your life. So the way we're going to do it is you just come down and you take one of the crackers, you take a cup and you go back to your seat and then we will receive it together. Um, so yeah, Max, you can go ahead and, and uh, when Max is done, we'll receive Holy Communion together, but come on down. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive
On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and after breaking it, he gave thanks and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take, drink, this is my blood shed for you for the new covenant. Amen. All right. So we always want to open it up for conversation or questions. Um, I said a lot today about symbolism, specifically about the symbolism of the nativity story. And I'm curious how that struck you. Um, any questions about that? Any comments? Um, I'd also love to hear kind of, you know, what, what act or what symbolic aspect of the text stand out to you? What does the Jesus story mean to you symbolically, right? Um, what parts of it I guess, stand out to you the most or um, speak to you the most? Does anybody have any questions or comments about any of that here this morning? Everyone's like, oh my God, get that baby. Yeah, she, she might not be able to reach it. Yeah, yeah, sure, Emily. I'm gonna bring this mic to you so that people online can hear you. Cool, cool, there you go. It's not that important, I assure you, but <laughs> what's, what's that? No. Um, no, I was just going to say, I think it's weird that the the laws of the land constantly change. And as Christians, we are taught that we should follow the laws of the land. Sometimes their meaning changes depending on what's going on in society and, and Christians accept that. But for some reason, the laws of the Bible don't ever change and they shouldn't change and we should constantly be living in an archaic understanding and and the meaning of what it was rather than what it could be um even though the translations have happened and all you know so i just find that very interesting that that sometimes it's convenient to have the laws change of how you live and sometimes it's not when it comes to the bible yeah that's a, that's a really good point come on sophie yeah, she was saying that interesting how the laws of the land change in accordance with the times in order, you know, to progress with our understanding of what it means to be a just and equitable society and those kinds of things. But the for a lot of people, the Bible is like this static, unchanging law document, right? That uh, and unfortunately it means that a lot of people are kind of living in a late bronze age kind of world. And that's frankly terrifying and deeply troubling. Uh, for all the reasons we can imagine. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good point. Because, you know, people read those laws as again, being that kind of like the literal word of God for all of time. And it's, it always applies. It's a matter where or when we are living. Um, and that's obviously deeply problematic. But, well, yeah, good stuff. Um, somebody else? 
have something I want to, I'll come back and get that mic from you. Yeah, sure, Desiree. Make sure that's on. Oh, cool. There you go. Okay, thank you. So the first thing that struck me when you were talking was when you were saying that, you know, the ancient Middle East um, understanding was that the stories could, like repeating the stories and, and the spoken word and all of that could change something, change history, change yeah. the world. And it, for me, I think it still does. I think the stories that we tell change people and people change the world. Yeah. And so um, that was an important um, thing that kind of stuck up, stuck in my head when you were going over that is that we might not think of it as a mystical, magical like power anymore, but but the power to change the world still exists in our stories and the, and the way that we share them and ourselves with the world. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you for that comment. Yeah, somebody else this morning. Yeah, Nathan. I really resonated with um, what you're saying about that there was a time when if someone questioned the nativity story, you would assume that it meant it's untrue. Right. But in fact, it has even more truth when you loosen the grip on the historicity of it. Yeah. Not to say it didn't happen. You know, that's right. totally fine. But the story suddenly becomes the more beautiful, more deep, more profound, more for me personally, like Christmas is, is now more significant than it ever was when I thought it actually, you know, Jesus was born on December 25th in, in Israel, you know, like it is full of wonder and mystery. Yeah. It is light coming into darkness. It's about a God incarnate. I mean, like these concepts are insane and incredible and in a broken world like we have like that's what we need we need Advent yeah. every year we need you know emmanuel come lord come come love of the world come life come light. so i just love it more and i've grown to appreciate it more but it was i had to get past that scary thought of yeah untruth it means it's not true but actually it means it's more true than anything you know. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, let me get that mic. Thanks, Hunter. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Nathan. Yeah. Other thoughts, remarks? Cool. Well, thanks for being here, everybody. <laughs> that concludes uh, our service here this morning. Uh, but as always, I invite you to hang out and chat. And uh, next week, what's the theme next week? Hope, peace, joy, love, love. Very cool. Um, yeah, I tried to work joy into this one a little bit, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I really wanted to cover this. So thank you everybody for being here and go in peace. And thank you to all who are online. Bob, I'm assuming nobody had any questions up there. Okay, very cool. All right, thanks everybody. Bye-bye now. Hang up the phone, you know. Oh, come.